My name is Susie. I have three children, the youngest of whom struggles with anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. I never thought this could happen to me, and I miss the signs. Being a parent is really hard, but I'm here to help. I'm talking to other parents and experts to help you with the struggles that your kids may face. I want you to know that you are not alone and there is hope. I'm not a physician, therapist, or counselor. I'm just a mom. I want to see you smile again, take away that pain in them clouds that keep covering up the sun. On this episode of the Just a Mom podcast, I'm very honored and delighted to be joined by Brenda and Faith Ferber. And I learned about them and their story through an article that a friend sent me in the Huffington Post. And the title really grabbed me. So, of course, I read it and a friend sent it. And I reached out to Brenda via email um, through her website, and she answered. And I'm just so excited to have you guys here because you have a very compelling story, a very hopeful story, and I'm really excited to share it with our listeners and the work that you're doing now in terms of mental health and mental health awareness. So thank you guys so much for being with me on this episode. Thanks for having us. So I I alluded to this article that was in the Huffington Post. Brenda, would you tell our listeners what the title of it is and why it probably grabbed me the way it did? So the title of the article is, My Daughter Told Me She Wanted to Die. To Save Her Life, I Gave Her Permission to End It, which is a very grabby, salacious sort of title. And... um, I wrote the article many years ago and tried to get it published with a different title, which was A Radical Act of Love. Um, And it couldn't get published, but as soon as I changed the title to be something more clickbaity and grabby and attention grabbing, um, HuffPost picked it up right away and published it with almost no editing at all. And it did really well, and I, it was read by close to 900,000 people in the first five days. I received hundreds of emails from people who are in a similar boat, and it just was shocking how many people are struggling the way I struggled, the way I know, Susie, you struggled, the way our kids struggled, So, um, and people don't talk about it. And people don't write about it. So it felt like a very important article to come out. And congratulations for starters on getting that many views and reads in in a short amount of time. It's really well written. It's a very good article. And I will put a reference to it, uh, link it in the show notes. But you're right. Even now, people are still not talking about mental health. And... I think our kids' generations, they're doing a better job of it. But, you know, Brenda, you're you're probably roughly my age. I'm 53. Our generation, we're still just really not talking about it. And it can be such a difficult, lonely path as a parent of a child who has a mental illness to walk. And that's the whole reason I started this podcast. I know you guys have done, and we'll get to that in a little bit, some different work in working to bust out this this stigma surrounding mental illness. But before we get to that, I really just want to delve into your story 
a mm-hmm. little, not a little bit more, but a lot more. And you know, read the article. I've done a little research and listened to another podcast that you guys were on. And I would love for Faith, you just to tell your your mental health journey. And I know it started for you at a really young age. Yeah, it started extremely young for me. You know, I I think that for a lot of people, mental illness can be nature, nurture, a combination of the two. For me, I very much feel like I was just born with a brain that was a little bit miswired. It never really fired and acted the way a a normal, typical brain might act. Um, So I know for me, when I really started struggling was probably kindergarten. Um, I'm a twin and in preschool, my twin and I were very, very close. He was super shy and I was super extroverted. So I talked for both of us. I made friends for both of us. He was very much my shadow. And kindergarten was gonna be the first time that we were put in separate classes. And I remember my parents were very worried about how my brother was gonna do without me there to kind of carry the team. Um, And so the first day of kindergarten came and I remember I was just like counting down the minutes until recess because I knew at recess I would be reunited with my twin. And then recess came and I found him on the playground and I ran up to him and I said hi and he said hey and then he ran off to play with the friends that he had made. And I was devastated. I felt rejected. I felt abandoned. I felt like not good enough. And so all of these things just hit me really, really hard, probably more extreme than than would be typical for a kindergartner. And I just remember being really distraught about it. And then that kind of sparked this core belief of I am simultaneously too much and not enough. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really carried with me throughout my life. Um, I know the first time I said I wanted to kill myself, I was nine. Um, I drew a picture of me in a tower being eaten by lions, and I had written, I should die, I will gladly kill myself, on this little drawing that a little kid had made. So I really, really struggled with depression and anxiety my entire childhood, and it just got worse and worse as I got older and got access to the internet and cell phones and just being a teenager, all of that really combined in a horrible way for me. I listened to, I I referenced earlier, a podcast where you really delve into your teen years and, and what all was a part of that. Would you be willing to share that again for our listeners? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, when I was nine, I threatened to hurt myself with a knife and thank God my parents responded in a really appropriate way and asked me if I wanted to go to therapy. And I said, yes. So I was starting weekly therapy in third grade. um, And I was in therapy throughout my life. Um, Middle school things really kind of escalated to an extreme. Um, I was part of this popular group that was also the mean girl group. Um, Everyone in the group was like very uh, ahead of the time. Physically, they had developed, all my friends went through puberty before me. Um, They were really beautiful and I was kind of this like scrawny, underdeveloped 12 year old. And because I, I wasn't like one of the pretty ones, I felt like I was kind of on the outskirts of the group because of that. So in sixth grade was when 
my I got a cell phone, all my friends got a cell phone, um, and and that escalated things. So I was in sixth grade when I started talking to a seventh grader, and a, the seventh grader asked me to send a naked picture, and. You know, I think a lot of 12 year olds might have been really kind of scared and thrown off being asked something like that, but I didn't feel that way at all. I felt like wanted and desired. And so then I took this naked picture and I sent it to him and he like immediately responded and was like, oh my God, you're so sexy. I want to make out with you, all of these things. And I was like, what an easy way to feel good about myself. I have spent my whole childhood feeling like I am a horrible person, deserving of death. Um, I very much believed that there are good people in the world and bad people in the world. So statistically, some people have to be bad. And I thought that I was just one of the bad ones. So in middle school, when I'm suddenly finding that I can very easily get attention from boys and people want to be around me, which would then make me more popular, it was like an amazing thing that I had unlocked. Um, and my mom was very on top of things. She had like all of the different spyware so she could see what we were saying online and monitoring us. And she cared a lot about like making sure that we were being appropriate and not saying things online that we wouldn't also say in person and things like that. So she caught me sending nudes frequently and I would try to delete them and all of that. And she would find out anyways, or she'd see the gaps in conversation and be able to fill in the blanks. Um, and I remember, you know, she really, she tried to handle it well and, and said to me, you know, it's, it's great that you feel good about your body, but you are a child. It is illegal to send naked pictures of yourself. And I was like, how dare you? My body, my choice. I feel good about my body. You should be happy that your daughter doesn't feel self-conscious about her body. And like, I'm going to go out and do these things. And she was like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> yes, your body, your choice. When you're 18, when you're an adult, it can make these adult decisions, but like, you can't do it as a child. And I was like, Psh all right, I, I'm going to keep doing that. So sexting was a big part of middle school for me. I was also self-harming. Like all of my sexting was, was pretty fueled by I didn't feel good about myself. I hated myself. And so I really was desperate for any kind of validation from other people that I had some kind of worth. Um, and so that was a really nasty combination throughout middle school. Sure. And yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just was going to ask your mom, Brenda. Yeah. So obviously you're seeing these photos or, you know, filling in the blanks um, of these conversations that she's having and she's a middle schooler. What, how did that make you feel at the time? I was truly devastated. I felt a lot of shame, like that maybe I was a bad mom or my husband was a bad dad. Um, we had done something wrong. How could this smart, capable little girl be behaving like this? She knew better, and yet she did it anyways. Yeah. So I, I was embarrassed. I was also so worried for her because as an adult, you could see where this could lead. And she yeah. couldn't see that. She couldn't see all the negativity coming her way. And we could. So it was terrifying. Did you yeah, have any idea at that time, Brenda, that it was what Faith said, like this was a manifestation of her feeling poorly about herself and that that was a way to get some positive intention? I did. I did understand that, but there's very little you could do about that because it, we were already 
like it didn't make sense. If you don't, if you take mental illness away from the picture, then it doesn't make any sense because she did well in school. She had two parents who loved her. She was not abused. She had friends. She was good at sports. She was good at music. She had many, many, many things that would make a, a typical neurotypical person feel great about themselves. Mm -hmm. So until you're able to like completely erase all the stigma of mental illness and go, oh, she's behaving this way because she has a mental illness. It doesn't make sense. Sure. No, thank and I you wasn't able it. to think that at that point. Sure. Well, because we don't know what we don't know, right? We don't know what we don't know. And it's very hard when you're raising a, a, a kid to know what's a phase that they're going to grow out of and what's mental illness. Mm -hmm. What's and a tough probably, teen versus mental illness? It's just very hard to know. It is so hard. And I've said that exact thing a million times. And it wasn't like you were going to pick up the phone and call your friends and say, hey, you know what? My daughter is sending nude pictures of her. So, you know, what do you think? What should we do? Right. I, I mean, did, though. I did. I, 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 I did. I, I had some like a very good best friend and a sister who was also a best friend who I talked to about this. And Faith was going to a therapist. So I, I wasn't alone in it. But so, um, we were all sort of like puzzled. But that know? is so great that you did open up to somebody any you know like you said you yes. had a trusted circle yeah that you felt comfortable and that had to have made it a little more bearable for you for sure 100 percent. and that's something that i think can't be emphasized enough to anyone who's parenting a, a child who's going through whatever the difficulty may be to have some trusted confidants and because we're not supposed to do this alone and it's a tough hard road no matter what but especially when we're not sharing with anybody what's going on so. right all right faith so let's hop back in and and finish your high school years and after yeah. this middle school experience and yeah so things continued to get really bad throughout middle school um, in seventh grade, so I was in this large friend group, there were 16 of us, and so inevitably within the large friend group, there were smaller friend groups, and I ended up getting really close with four other girls in the group, who we got close because I had found out that they were all cutting themselves, and I was also cutting myself at this time, and so we kind of all bonded over like typical middle school struggles. My parents don't understand me, life is hard, all of those different types of things. Um, I told my mom that I was cutting one night and she had the perfect response. She came into my bedroom and she hugged me and she said, if someone was doing this to you, I would tell them, please stop hurting my daughter. So please stop hurting my daughter. And that really resonated with me because I thought for sure she was gonna be mad at me and I was gonna get punished or grounded or whatever. And she was like, no, I'm just so sad for you. So I had opened up that communication about um, self-harm with my mom. And then my friends started cutting more and more and in the same place and deeper every time. And I, I was getting concerned about the cutting. And so I told my mom that I was worried about them and she was like, we, we have to tell their moms. And I was like, oh my God, please no, like that would be social suicide. I like, you cannot do that. Um, and she was like, no, I have to tell them. She tells, tells these other moms. She comes up with this plan of like, here's how you can discover the cutting on your own without like bringing Faith into it. And all of the moms were like, thank you so much. Faith is saving our daughter's lives. Please thank her, she's so brave. And then within like 24 hours, all of the other moms had talked and decided 
oh, our daughters are cutting themselves because of faith and she's a bad influence. So I came to school the next day and none of my friends were talking to me mm. and I had no idea what was going on until one of them had the decency to say, our mom said we can't be friends with you anymore. Yeah. So then I was like, you know, my whole world was shattered and this was a very, very, very clicky community that we grew up in. So not having friends was devastating to me. Um, and it got to a point that, you know, this was right before the summer. I think my parents really felt like things were going to blow over over the summer. We'd figured it out. Everything would be okay. Um, but then the start of eighth grade came and things had not resolved. And I was so distressed that I was like, I need to kill myself. Like, I cannot go to eighth grade. I'm going to kill myself. And that was the first time that I was hospitalized for suicidal ideation. And... It was helpful. Um, I, I, I definitely learned things in the hospitalization, but it but it certainly didn't take away the suicidal ideation. So eighth grade was a brutal year. Things just continued to get worse until February of my eighth grade year. My parents sent me to an outdoor behavioral health program in Hawaii. So they sent me to this program for troubled youth. Um, I lived on an organic farm. This program was actually incredible and amazing. Um, they use horticulture therapy in a way that teaches you how to care for the land and care for the plants and then care for yourself in the same way that you care for the land. So that was the first place where I felt like I had some worth. I could imagine what it would be like to love myself and value myself. So that was a really critical turning point for me and recognizing and just like not 100% hating myself. But my mental health continued to struggle. Mental illness was still there. Um, when I came back from being sent away, I went to a boarding school because I was like, I just cannot be with all of these people in this town. I've, I've got to get out of here and get a fresh start. Um, so I went to this all girls boarding school in Connecticut and it was truly a great program, a great school for me. Um, there was a required class on social justice for all freshmen and that kind of changed my life. I became an activist. I realized like I can channel my passion and my anger and my strong sense of justice into all of these positive things. So school was a great environment. Um, and then I came out as gay when I was 16. And because I went to an all-girls school and it was a boarding school, so we're all living together, um, I started to notice that they, the school was having different rules for the gay students versus the straight students. And me, my new impassioned social justice self, I was like, that's not fair, that's homophobia. Like, you should be treating us all the same. So I started to get really upset about it and I was like, I'm done with this school, I'm over it. And my parents were like, please, like, this is my junior year of high school. They're like, we're begging you to just like make it through the school year. And then if you wanna switch schools, you can switch schools, but please just make it through the school year. And I did not do that. Um, I broke one of the major school rules regarding sex on campus. I got in trouble. Um, that made things worse. I started to feel like, oh gosh, like I'm, I'm really messing things up for myself. Um, I was talking to an older girl at the time. I was in high school, she was in college. Um, and I already bad. And I wanted to get off of campus and go have a sleepover at her house. And so I told my advisor, who was also the dean of students, I texted her and said, I'm feeling suicidal. Can I sleep at my girlfriend's house off campus? <laughs> T 
teenage brain because of course I'm not thinking through the potential consequences of that. And next thing I know, one of the dorm parents is knocking on my door and she's like, you need to come to my apartment. I go to her apartment. She's like, look, you said that you're suicidal. The ambulance is coming and you're gonna have to go to the hospital. And then I was like, oh, I really messed up here. I was like, I take it back. I didn't mean it. Please don't do that. And they were like, sorry, you're a minor. Like, we have to. We're responsible for you. It's a liability issue. They sent me to the psych ward. Um, they called my mom and told her that she needed to come pick me up, get on the next flight to Connecticut. And she was livid and was like, she's not going to kill herself. She's just being manipulative. Like, send her on a plane to Chicago. Like, we don't care. And they were like, no, you, you're going to have to come get her. Um, and so the school did tell me, they were like, at this point, you're a liability. We can't have you on campus. We're going we're gonna to ask you to leave the school. So this is midway through junior year, most important year of high school. And because this happened in the middle of the semester, I got straight Ds from all of my teachers. Um, and so I remember being like, oh, now I've really messed up my life to the point of no return. I went back to this school where nobody had seen me since eighth grade. And when I left in eighth grade, I was this like, slutty crazy boy crazy teenager and then I came back to the same community where everyone was still in the same friend groups like nobody had changed at all and I was gay and I was an activist and I was over being a mean girl and everyone was just there was just no room for me to be a different person I was still the same eighth grade faith and so that ramped up my depression to another level because I just had really felt like I messed up my life so badly. There was no coming back from it. I didn't know the way out. And so that's when I became super, super, super suicidal. And one of the, you know, the what happened right before this conversation that my mom wrote about in Huffington Post, she talks about how I came home that day and she could see that I was so dejected and exhausted and just like worn out. And what she didn't know was that right before I came home, I had tried to kill myself. And I was so certain of my decision to end my life that day. And I was so looking forward to being dead and the relief of no longer being in pain. So the fact that I then attempted suicide, wrote the note and everything, um, and then didn't, didn't die, I remember thinking, oh my God, I am such a failure that I can't even kill myself correctly. Mm. And so that dejection that my mom saw when I came home was me being like certain that suicide was the only option for me and not even knowing how mm. to make that actually happen. Brenda, I don't know about you, but my son, Will, who has also ideated suicide and had plans and he did not ever actually attempt, but it it's still so hard to listen to, and it's been six years. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but for me, I, yeah, that, it's just really hard to hear your, your baby say, you know, I just wanted to die. <clears throat> yeah, it it is so hard, and, and it, it gets easier for me because it has been so many years, and Faith is doing so well. I know Will is is still youngish. Like, did he just, is he a senior? He's 20. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's 20. 20. He's, yeah, just finished so, his talk. So he still has some years to go um, before his brain is fully developed. Um, so Faith is 28. And I feel 
it's a lot easier to look back at this time now than it was. And also, I've written a whole memoir about this time, and so I've processed a lot of it. So it's definitely easier. It feels like that's something in the past, and it's something that Faith overcame, something that I overcame, too. Um, but it's interesting so it that is, you say that, because I yeah. asked the other day, like, do you still worry that I could kill myself? And you oh, said, I do. Yeah. Oh, of course yeah. I do. That, that worry will never go away. Yep. It will yep. never go away, but yep. it's, it's not my primary thought when I wake up in the morning or go to sleep at night, the way it was back when you were suicidal. Um, because you do such a good job taking care of your mental health now, could that change? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then I would be right back terrified and worried. And that's so interesting that you said that there's, yeah, you'll never not worry. I actually just wrote something the other day about that very thing. Will I ever not worry? No, don't think so. Don't think that makes sense as a mom. Yeah, it does. But the worry does take a backseat to the pride and the joy of seeing your child be a productive, meaningful adult. Yes, that, yes, I do agree with that. It's, um, yeah, and the power of the story that you guys have and that you are sharing it in order to help other people also probably helps process some of that worry too. I mean, sure. I guess I shouldn't say that, put words into your mouth, but for me, I guess that's part of, of yeah. it. It's somewhat, you know, therapeutic and cathartic to Very have these conversations and, and um, so I just appreciate that you guys are, are doing the work that you are doing. So we're at the moment, Faith, in your story, and Brenda, where you wanted to die. And Brenda, that's when you said what you wrote about in the Huffington Post article. Yes. So I was sitting at home on the couch reading a book, and Faith came home after school. And leading up to this moment, I had a feeling that Faith was going to die by suicide. I, I sort of just understood that no amount of good parenting, no amount of love was going to save her life, that I was going to lose my daughter to suicide. And it was a devastating feeling, but that's how I felt in that moment. And I also remember that her depression in the past had always been sort of fueled by anger and mania and frustration. And this depression that she was showing ever since she started back at the public school was more of a complete soul-sucking hopelessness. And that scared me. So Faith comes home. She sits on the couch, snuggles in next to me. And I say, how are you doing? And she said, not good. And I said, things will get better. And she said, no, don't say that. And I've been saying things are going to get better her whole life, right? That's what parents do. Mm -hmm. And um, so she said, mom, you're going to be okay when I die. You'll get over it. 
I said, Faith, I will never get over it. She said, Mom, kids die from cancer all the time and parents get over it. I said, that's bananas. Parents never get over it. And also, you don't have cancer. And I said, if you had cancer, we would try every single thing to cure you. Western medicine, Eastern medicine, everything in between. And she said, but then if you tried everything and I was still sick, you would let me die. And that's when the light bulb went on for me. And I was like, hmm, this is like cancer. This depression is killing her as sure as a malignant tumor. So I said, okay, I hear you. And it felt like we had tried everything, medicine, therapy, um, the program in Hawaii, hospitalizations, so much. But those were all Western medicine types of treatments. I said, if we try everything and you still feel this bad, then you can die by suicide. And those words came out of my mouth. I don't know how, of their own accord. I, I, certainly, I didn't want her to die by suicide. And, and she knew that. Mm-hmm. And if we had a gun in our house, I just need to preface this. Mm-hmm. If we had a gun in our house, that would not be a safe conversation to have. In fact, if you have a mentally ill person in your home, you should not have a gun in your house, period. Yes. Um, so anyhow, Faith was like, okay. And yeah. go ahead, Faith. I was going to say, I, I think what's so interesting is, is in the article, it it kind of makes it sound like when we tell the story a lot, of people think that, that that validation was like all I needed. And then I was like, great, amazing. Um, I can do this. But in reality, I felt so relieved when she said that because I was certain that nothing was going to work. And so to me, this was now my ticket out. All I had to do was make it through this list of X number of treatments and then inevitably none of them would work and then finally I could die. Mm. So for me, it wasn't about like hope that things would get better at that point. It was hope that I was finally going to have an exit without like completely Mm -hmm. crushing my family. Wow. And then Brenda, in the article, you continue on to say, you know, okay, if I could go back and have that conversation now, here's what I would say. And I love what you wrote. Why don't yeah. you tell the listeners what you wrote? Okay, well, I'll, I'll preface by saying I became a crisis counselor with Crisis Text Line after uh, this conversation, and everything I learned about talking about suicide, I learned from them. So what I would have done is I would have asked Faith, point blank, do you have a plan for ending your life? And do you have the means to carry out that plan? And do you have a time frame for when you would do that? And I would ask all of these questions in a very non-judgmental, open-hearted manner. And only if all of those answers were yes and immediate would I then say, well, we need to go to the hospital or we need to keep you safe. We need to like create some sort of safety measure for you. But that information, having that open dialogue would have, is so important. And it helps a parent know what do you need to do? So maybe they're just thinking about it. Lots of people think about suicide. It's kind of typical to think about it every so often. To make a plan, that's something else. To, ha- to 
collect the means to carry out that plan, that's another step too. So you have to know where they are on that sort of um, path towards suicide. And I think um, one of the most, um, the worst stigma around suicide is that it makes people feel that asking someone, are you thinking about suicide, will put the plan in their head if they weren't thinking about it before. And that's, none of the research shows that that happens. In fact, all of the research shows that best practice is to ask someone if they're thinking about suicide. And so I think that with that knowledge, it's like that, that would have been a different approach that we took mm -hmm. then, but so many people are worried about even, even mentioning suicide. Absolutely. Right. That's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. And also something that I've been told about that, you know, line of questioning to someone who may, may be thinking about suicide is it can almost be a relief to the person that, oh my gosh, I thought nobody cared. I thought nobody loved me. And, you know, everybody's going to be better off if I'm not here. And then you've got someone who's like, oh, this is something you're thinking about. Let's talk about it. Right. You could demystify it. You could make a safety plan. How am I going to keep you safe for the next 24 hours? And then let's talk again. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like jump to like, you're going to the psych ward. You know, you don't have to um, overreact to right. the situation, but you do need to react. Yes. For, uh, yeah, obviously. Yes, for sure. Thank you for pointing that out though, because yeah, you can't just be like, okay, well, I'm going to go to work now. See you later. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I want to say something because the, the phrase good mom or good parents, that's one of those almost nails on the chalkboard yes. for me. Yes. And I'm sure you've had people say things to you like I have over the last few years. You know, well, how did this happen to a family mm -hmm. like yours? As though, you know, there's some whatever it is that protects certain types of families or people from mental illness. Exactly. You would never ask someone if your child had diabetes or cancer or God, you know, any other illness, physical right. illness. You would never blame the parents. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's that's the mental illness stigma right there. Yep. And so I, I remember I had a friend when I mentioned that Faith had a mental illness. He was like, "Mentally ill? What are you talking about?" I'm like, "Yes, she has a mental illness. Don't say that. Don't say that." I, I was like, why? <laughs> why not? Yeah. But people are like, oh, that's so scary and awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're working on it, though. Yeah. And, and poor it. parenting, poor parenting can create conditions for mental illness. But that doesn't mean that if you have mental illness, you have bad parents. I had fantastic parents. I would not have been alive. I wouldn't be alive today if I didn't have parents who took mental health as seriously as physical health. Mm -hmm. And also, I still struggled with mental illness. Yes. So thank you for pointing that out. I appreciate that. So after, I mean, these extensive things that you had tried that had not worked, did you do something different then after when this conversation that you had? What Tell us a little bit about what you tried then and, and what the effectiveness of it was or wasn't. Yeah, it's wild because the first things that we tried worked, which I don't think either of us expected. Um, one was that I got on a new medication um, that, that then also 
allowed me get to get a diagnosis of bipolar. So before I had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, um, and then senior year of high school was diagnosed with bipolar and got on the right meds, which, which made a big difference. Um, but the other thing that made the most massive difference that I think we were really, really surprised by was the first thing that I tried was energy healing. My mom had a, a very, very close friend who was an energy healer, and we didn't really know if it was legit or how it worked or really what it was um, but we were willing to try it and my mom had said like my mom had prefaced everything with like you just need to go in with an open mind you don't need to believe that it's going to work but just be open and I said I could do that I can do that so this energy healing is wild because we're living in the suburbs of Chicago and Cheryl this energy healer lives in Michigan so she's doing all of this over the phone so I'm like even if this is a thing that works it certainly can't be a thing that works over the phone like this just sounds too woo woo and probably a scam um, and I remember at one point you know I, I'm on this phone call with Cheryl and She's making all of these noises and stuff on the other end and shaking things and I don't know what's going on, but I start to think about like, oh, she's probably like scrolling on her phone while she's like shaking this thing. It's just like all a scam and she's just like pretending to do this stuff. And as soon as I kind of started to get distracted and think about how she was probably scamming us, she was like, bring your attention back to your breath and your body. And I was like, how did she know that I was getting distracted? Like, that's so strange. So that's when I started to be like, huh, what's, what's happening here? And then she told me that she was gonna go on a soul retrieval journey for me. So she was like, there's different parts of your soul that are missing. I'm gonna go on an energetic journey and find these parts. And as I see these things, I'm gonna tell you what I see and you're gonna tell me what they mean. I'm like, okay. So she makes all these noises and then she finds like these three different parts. And each time she finds a part, she asks me what it means. One was a pearl, one was a baby fawn, and one was a woman in a wedding dress where every time she looked at herself, she glowed. And as Cheryl's asking me, what does this part mean? Cognitively, I'm like, I have no idea what it means, you tell me. Um, but but as I'm thinking that, words are coming out of my mouth that make perfect sense as to what these parts mean. So that was a game-changing moment for me where I realized we actually have such deep knowledge and capacity to, capacity to heal inside of us that we're just not aware of because it's below our conscious awareness. And so she finds these parts, I tell her what they mean, she puts them back in my body energetically, and then we're done. And this is like an hour and a half. I come out of my room. I'm feeling weirdly light and weirdly not depressed. And I come downstairs and my mom says she, she saw a light in my eyes that she had not seen in years. Mm. And I remember thinking that it's weird that I feel so good. It might just last today. Maybe it'll last a couple days. It probably won't last more than a week. Inevitably, I'm gonna be suicidal again. But then days passed weeks passed, months passed, and I wasn't suicidal. And so I really think that this energy, energy healing saved my life in a way that I didn't think was possible. Mm -hmm. This is your senior year in high school. That's Actually, right. that was junior year, Faith. Junior year in high school. Okay, end of junior year, yeah. Okay. Yeah, end of junior year. Yeah. Yeah. Then end senior year was great. Yeah, it, senior year was great. Yeah. And. It, and you're, but you're still, you were still taking medication. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. 
And yes. were you also going to therapy at that time? Yes. Too? Oh, so yeah. You were continuing to work on your mental health and it wasn't. Yes. Especially with bipolar, it, it my mental health is something, you know, I used to say that it was like having a baby where you constantly needed to be taking care of it, paying attention to it, always addressing it, never neglecting it. And thank God I've gotten to a point in life where my mental illness is not like having a baby. I can be a lot more proactive so that I don't have to think about it all the time. I have to take my meds. I have very much learned that bipolar is not something you can manage unmedicated. So taking meds is really important for me. Seeking out therapy when I need it is really important for me. Practicing regular self-care is really important for me. But all of these things have just become a little bit more just a part of my day-to-day -day life. So managing my mental illness has gotten so much easier. And the fact that I'm looking behind you and I'm seeing diplomas and photos and obviously you're managing life really well. Tell us how life is now. Yeah, life is really amazing, honestly. Um, when I went to that wilderness program in Hawaii, I had a therapist for the first time who wasn't just like super nice and gentle and kind. She really called me out when I needed it and did not let me manipulate her and really, you know, held me accountable. And I was amazed by that, that she struck this perfect balance of being kind and compassionate and calling me out as needed. And that inspired me at that point. I said, if I, if I make it out alive from all of this, I'm going to become a therapist. Mm. And that's what I did. In undergrad, I majored in psychology and women, gender, and sexuality studies. And then I went and got my master's in social work at Rutgers with a certificate in ending violence against women and children. Um, and now I'm a therapist, which I absolutely love. And what's really so full circle is this month I just started a new job at a private practice that uses more of these body-based modalities like energy healing to help heal trauma. So it's just so incredible to me and so full circle that this is where I'm at now and that I get to spend every day helping people. And seeing your mom's face as you talk about this, I, I mean, that, it, it just brings me joy watching the joy in you, Brenda. So much pride. You know, Faith, from the moment she was born, we knew she was passionate and sensitive and empathic and um, energetic. And all of those traits were kind of hell to deal with as a child. But my husband and I constantly said to her, use your powers for good. And that's exactly what she's doing now. And we couldn't be more proud of her. That is so awesome. And I bet you are so good at it because you can understand so much of what your clients are, might be going through. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I really, I describe myself and I describe how I am as a therapist. I describe myself as 50% kind and compassionate, 50% badass bitch. So I strike that balance that I had with my therapist in Hawaii where I'm going to be so empathetic and so validating and also call you out when you need it, which I think has been a balance that works really, really well for me, especially, you know, being someone who's, I, I think that people who struggle with mental illness make the best therapists because people don't come to therapy 
being okay with being misunderstood. People don't come to therapy to be told things are going to get better. People don't come to therapy to be to face the same stigma that they face outside of therapy. So for me, it, it's really important for me to, to validate how my clients are feeling and to provide that empathy, especially living in today's day and age. I work a lot with queer and trans people, and it's a scary time to, to be in this country. And I will never be the type of therapist that says anything like, that sounds hard, what can you do to control it, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to say, yeah, this is a really terrifying time to live in and it makes sense that you're scared. And just being able to give space for my clients to show up fully and authentically and unapologetically has been really beautiful and healing for me. I want to press in a little bit to the 50% um, calling you out because as as you talked about earlier with the manipulation and when you you know said i'm going to kill myself and if i don't go you know stay at my girlfriend's and then you know the alarm bells went off and you were like oh actually i wasn't i just wanted to do what i wanted to do yeah i think as a parent but brenda like you kind of caught on to that and knew that immediately like i i i was putting myself in your shoes thinking how would i have reacted at that point and I think that's sometimes so hard to know yeah. how to manage, you know, that. So, Faith, would you tell me a little bit about how you how you do that, and what what is it that makes you know that somebody needs to have a little, you know, tough love? Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty honest with my clients about the type of therapist that I am. So they kind of know going into it that I'm going to be kind and compassionate and also call you out if I feel like you need it. Um, and I, I still always get consent. So if I'm working with a client and they're saying something that I'm like, I, I'm going to need to really push back and challenge them here, I'll say, do you have some room to hear feedback from me? And usually that reminds them, ah, yes, I'm in therapy to get your perspective on things. Um, and, and then I, you know, I'll say it in a gentle way, but I'm also gonna say like, you're not gonna twist this one around on me or, or manipulate the situation or convince me, you know, like I, I can see right through it. And so there's just a lot of space for me. And, and thankfully I have such great relationships with my clients where there is room for me to say, hold on a second, that thing you said is really concerning or that thing you said doesn't align with your beliefs and things like that. And, and that really, I actually love those moments because I think that the validation and empathy is massively huge. And also I see the biggest growth moments when I can push back on my clients and say mm -hmm. like, let, let me give you my perspective on that. In mm -hmm. therapy, we talk about like holding up the mirror to our clients. So that's me holding up the mirror to be like, do you see what you're saying and what you're doing here and how that doesn't align with what you're working towards? Mm. Excellent. Let's talk now a little bit about stigma smashers. Ah, yes. I yes. love that name. Tell us about <laughs> Thank it. You. Thank you. Yeah, so I told my, I, I, from the time I was honestly like 14, I was telling my mom, we need to write a memoir about our story. And I remember when I was 14, she was like, no, no, our story is not over yet. I don't think you're out of the woods, which she was 100% correct. It was not time. Um, and then when I was in college and I was doing so well in college, I was like, it's time now. Like, this is a story I really felt strongly that it needed to be told because I always believed that we were not the only ones struggling like this. But because I lacked so many boundaries and was always an open book and always willing to talk about everything, I was like, we can tell our story and make a difference for people. We're willing to talk about it. And my mom was very much like, 
please, like, we literally just made it out of this. Can't we just go on peacefully with our lives? Why do we need to revisit this? Why am I going to open myself up to the public telling me I'm a horrible parent when she had to deal with that my whole childhood? And I just kept kind of pushing and being like, this is an important story. And there's always going to be haters out there, but there's going to be more people. Mom, were you going to say something? I, yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know if um, the listeners know, I'm actually a published author. I wrote books yes. for kids. So that's where this was coming from. It wasn't like I was just a, you know, a just random a, person. Just a mom. Yes. Yeah. So I knew how to write a story. So yes. that was one of the that. reasons I, Faith wanted me to do that. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. She's an author. So I was like, this is, this is a story to write. Um, and so eventually we started working on a memoir. We, we wrote a version together. We wrote versions separately. Um, we did a couple different drafts. We did a whole bunch of critique groups together. It was really a fun process. Um, and we ended up with my mom has written this really, really beautiful memoir called Keeping Faith. And I wrote the prologue to it. And we're now working on trying to get a publisher. And unfortunately, in today's day and age, the feedback that my mom was getting from publishers was if you want to publish a memoir, you need to either be a celebrity or have a massive following already, which we did not have either. <laughs> so we started talking about like, how can we start to build a little bit more of an audience? And I said, you know, TikTok is, is where you have the most chance of randomly going viral. And so I think that we should start a TikTok. And so last year, Mental Health Awareness Month, um, we started posting on stigma smashers. And my mom and I are both anti-procrastinator, type A type of people. And so as soon as I suggested that we make a TikTok, within like 48 hours, my mom was like, I've watched 12 hours of tutorials on how to make TikToks. I made a website. I reached out to all of these people to design a logo for us. Like she had done so many things already. <laughs> and then we just kind of hit the ground running and started making TikToks together and it's been a really fun and awesome experience since then and it has helped kind of build our platform and to continuously get so much feedback from people online through TikTok, through our email, through my mom's Huffington Post article, it really reinforces, I think even more than we expected, that so many people need to hear this story, so mm -hmm. many people need to hear this perspective. It really resonates on such a deep level. Mm -hmm. The feedback we've gotten from so many people, especially parents, is I didn't know anyone else felt this way. I felt like you were mm -hmm. writing this about me. I felt like I needed this article and it came to me at the exact right time. It feels like it was fate that you wrote this article. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is just reinforced how much of an audience there really is for this because people need to hear these stories yep. to be able to hold on to hope and know that they're not alone. Absolutely. Exactly. Mm. Brenda, the TikTok star, it, uh, and I was, <laughs> Telling Brenda and Faith before we started recording that I don't have a TikTok. I have no idea how to even, I wouldn't even know where to start. And I love that you just were like, I'm all in and <laughs> figured it out. And that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I'm still so far behind. Like I'll, I'll write a script, I'll send it to Faith and she'll be like, mom, no, this is not the this way. This is a blog say post, not a TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so Faith is definitely the lead on the TikTok and I'm just like, you know, running behind her, trying to catch up and trying to learn and trying to do it the best I can. But we've gotten over 40,000 likes on our videos over the last year. And um, we've got like 3,300 followers. And so if we feel like we're making a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and like you said, 900,000 people read your 
Huffington Post yeah, okay. in the first five days. Yeah. I'm guessing you can go to publishers now. I don't know. Yeah, our, our, my agent right now, as we're recording this, my agent is currently um, talking to publishers and trying to find a publisher for the memoir. So hopefully we'll get good news sometime this summer. Yes. Yeah. Well, you'll have to keep me posted and let me know because I know we will all want to know. The listeners will want to know. And when the book becomes available, they'll all want to get it. Thank you. Um, have you ever thought about writing a children's book about mental health? Mm. Good question. It's a good question. I haven't. I, 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 I sort of feel like I'm done writing for children. As my kids got older and as um, childhood changed so much, it's so like social media and cell phones have really changed childhood a ton. I feel a little out of touch with today's kids. So I don't know that I really want to write for kids anymore. I'm very much enjoying writing essays, personal essays. And that's something that I had never done until I wrote this memoir, but I'm, I love writing them. And so I'm just going to continue doing that for now. But Faith is a great writer also. And I could write a book for kids. (laughs) Well, honestly, like her memoir could be like a a young adult memoir Mm -hmm. uh, if she wanted to write a, you know, cause she has a draft that she wrote when we first wrote our memoir together. And she could turn that into a memoir for young adults about Mm -hmm. mental illness. I think it would be extremely powerful, but Faith's also Mm -hmm. a very busy young woman, so I don't want to pressure her into Well, doing if your that. memoir sells, I'm definitely going to write mine. So. <laughs> All right, good, 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 good. Awesome. Wow. Well, and let, I don't want to go on too many tangents or rabbit, rabbit holes, but you did mention how social media has changed childhood and how, mm-hmm. you know, obviously that the technology and phones w- was a big part of your journey, faith, and mm-hmm. Would both of you just address what you think, um, particularly in light of what just came out of the Surgeon General's um, um, office saying that, you know, hey, this social media thing is really uh, causing some mental health issues and we need to work on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that my mom did such a great job, although it annoyed me. It it was so important that she was reading every single word and had all of the spyware programs downloaded to kind of monitor those things. I grew up in a time where like chat rooms were still a thing. So I was meeting strangers on the internet through chat rooms and things like that. And there was once this like kid dating site called Spin the Bottle that I joined. And then that was full of like adults trying to find children. So there was a lot of like really inappropriate things happening before it was kind of understood how this was happening and how adults were preying on children through the internet. I think that's a million times worse now. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of the kids these days have TikToks, Instagrams, Twitters, like all of these different platforms that are really, really easy for adults to find, especially on TikTok. And so I know that TikTok, I think you have to be 13 to have an account, but like even that, like 13, that's when I was getting into the most trouble. Um, And so I think parents really do need to be so, so on top of social media. I think that if you're gonna allow your kids to have social media, you need to be checking it all the time. You need to insist on being friends, following your children, having constant 
repetitive conversations about the dangers of the internet, things being online forever, things like that. I think one thing that's so hard about parenting teens, but is really important to keep in mind is that you have to repeat the same message over and over and over again for it to sink in. And so the same goes with social media. Yeah. I think it's, you know, aside from all of the dangers of just social media in general, we also have this piece of like everyone's putting their best self on the internet. And so that then also makes it a lot easier to feel like you're behind, everyone's happier than you, everyone's more successful than you. I think imposter syndrome has gotten a lot worse lately. Everyone's like, oh God, everyone in the world is better than me. And so I think that social media has been really harmful in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Like kids used to come, like when I was growing up, when you were growing up, Susie, we would come home from school and that would be it unless you called someone on the phone and had a conversation. But these kids today are never escaping the social pressures. Yeah. Never. It's hard. It is. And I think it, you know, there are all these studies that are showing the correlation between mm -hmm. social media and mental health. Mm -hmm. are, I, I think we see it every day. And yeah. I can't imagine how difficult it would be as a you know, kid or a teenager to have that just constant all the time. So yeah. Yeah. very good. Okay. Is there anything that I have not asked you guys that you want to share? I guess the only thing I would just add is for the parents out there, um, just remember that empathy and validation are your secret weapons with your teens, even when they are driving you up a wall. And hang in there. Yeah. And, and find and your support. Will, yeah. And I will say for kids struggling with mental illness, I think too often parents take the perspective of like, yes, being a teen is so hard. Like just wait until you're not a teenager and you'll feel better. Like, you know, in a few years you'll be all right or give it, give it five years or whatever. And like, that's a massive amount of time for a child. And so one of the things that I really try to hone in on is it's okay if you don't know how to get out of this situation. It's okay. I think so often parents say, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And, and I always say, Either kids can't see that light at the end of the tunnel, so that just doesn't resonate. Or even if you can see the light at the tunnel, it doesn't mean that you have the energy to get there. And so I really try to focus in on like, we don't need to find the way out. We don't need to find the solution. If you are struggling with your mental illness, kids or adults, focus on getting through the day. Mm -hmm. And if focusing on getting through the day feels too hard and too overwhelming, focus on getting through the hour and then just repeat every hour focusing on getting through. I think breaking it down into those smaller pieces makes it feel a little less daunting, overwhelming, and hopeless. That is a great point. And like you said, especially for a kid, I mean, if you're 13 years old and it's like, oh, you'll be fine in five years. It's like five years. I can't right. do this for five right. more years. Yeah. Right. yeah, I've already been doing it most of my life like you faith and so that just must seem completely overwhelming but those are those are good words from both of you thank you for that well brenda and faith it has been truly an honor to get to have this conversation with you guys and i really appreciate the work that you guys are both doing um surrounding mental health and working on you know 
smashing that stigma. And I might have to to get on TikTok so I can see <laughs> what y'all are, are, are up to, or I'll ask one of my kids to yeah. <laughs> show me. Yeah, give us a follow. Okay. <laughs> I, if I go on TikTok, I for sure will. And I will, I'll put it all in the show notes. So um, people who do, who are TikTokers can, can follow you and um, watch your, your content. So Thank you so much, Susie. Thank you you guys. And I really do appreciate you being on this episode of the Just a Mom podcast. If you or someone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please share this with your friends and anyone you think may find these interviews helpful. Thanks again for listening to Just a Mom.